Hello, and welcome to Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I am so delighted once again to be joined by Lauren Malone. Hi, everyone. So this is our final installment of the Summer 22 read-along. So we finished The Shakespeare Requirement by Julie Schumacher. And so we will talk through that. And then as promised, and fortunately Lauren remembered, we will give the names of the people that we would cast in the movie version, because it really would be delightful to have a movie version of this. So Lauren, would you be willing, as I have put you on the spot the last two times, to give a brief summary of where we've been so far in the book before we jump into what happened in the final section? Where we've been are intrepid heroes. No, just kidding. Um, so Jay has been desperately, but not also not desperately, trying to get the statement of vision done so that the English department can get their funding so that they are not ousted by the greedy machinations of Roland Gladwell, the chair of the mm -hmm of the econ department. And in the mix of all of this, Jay is pining after his ex-wife and the English department is fighting against each other and our favorite student is pregnant. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. So we move into the final four chapters and I just, gosh darn it, it cracked me up. So <laughs> we start with a section where Roland is is trying to hunt down Casavan and realizes that Casavan's no longer in his office because he can't be because it's cold and also people keep doing things to it. And so he finds him, you know, in the, the bowels, even though it's the fourth floor, <laughs> the bowels of the library, working still diligently on his book. And there was a line in here that, that's interesting because Schumacher says that for Casavan it was a it was a source of comfort, but it's actually in the last few years become a source of anxiety for me. So she says, with the tip of a finger, Casavan straightened his stack of index cards. He found the smell of the library, the quiet, musty scent of books oddly reassuring. It reminded him of the impermanence of his work, how deeply invested in it he was, and how little it meant to almost anyone else, which was as it should be. Mm -hmm. And it's gotten to the place where I will go up into the stacks and be like, there are all these books that no one is ever going to read that people invested their entire, maybe not lives, but certainly, you know, like a good considerable chunk of their lives to. And that does not, I don't find that reassuring and comforting. Do you? No, but I also don't find it anxiety inducing. Okay. I'm, I'm neutral because it, it leaves the possibility that years hence, for some random reason, someone might pick up one of those works mm -hmm. and the author somewhere gets a little like spark of joy in their soul or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I think I just figure since I haven't checked it out and no one else has checked it out that like that's, that's its fate forever. But that, that is nice to think of it as like, that's its fate to date. And that's, you know, that is one of the really like sort of defining moments of, of Casavan though, is that he's this real, old guard version of of higher ed that really says that like you know it may not have an obvious impact on what people are going to do for their future jobs or what people are going to do when they leave the university but it's nevertheless important right and and of course there's been a shift 
recently in higher ed to this conversation of like, but is that right? Like, should that be what we're doing? Or should everything be so explicitly tied to whatever students are going to do in their future lives? So I really like how Schumacher keeps giving us these huge, huge, huge debates through just this one character, right? Who's who's flawed and, and not perfect, but definitely has an opinion. And of course, Roland offers the sort of like ultimate bait to Casavan, which is, you know, we could make it a requirement for everyone. Everyone could have to do it. And then there's that moment where he's like, but that would mean I would be teaching. <laughs> he like does the math of how many classes and how many TAs and he gets almost overwhelmed. And, and so again, you know, all the debates we hear pretty much all the time about like gen ed requirements in this like dark, literally dark, shady deal that's trying to go on in the creepiest part of the library. <laughs> Yeah. I also really liked in this section, because we talked about last time how, like, Roland and Jay are sort of the, the two opposite sides of the coin, right? Mm -hmm. And how the issue at the center of the book is that Roland knows really well how to play the, the game yes. of higher ed, yes. and Jay does not. And I think this section was really cool to have in here, because you, you see this other person who knows exactly what the game is and refuses to play. So you have this different, this different, I guess, perspective on the way that Roland is seen, mm -hmm. um, because it's not, it's not in a good light. It's not like Casavan like admires him or anything. In fact, quite the opposite. But you do get to see that, like, no, there's this one scholar who he. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. He knows exactly what Ka what um Roland is trying to do, but he's refusing to by his rules he's refusing to engage in the way that Roland wants to engage with him that's a really good point because I think it's it's easy to assume that everyone falls into one of two camps right that they either play the game or don't know how to play the game whatever that might be when it comes to being at a university but but you are so very right that there is this very important at least one more camp of people that are just like nope <laughs> I'm just not I'm not interested and, you know, it's interesting because we have to ask ourselves, of course, like how much of it's because Casavan is nearing the point when he passed the point when he should have retired and how much of it is he would he never played the game or the game has shifted and he knows it's shifted. It's just, yeah, it's really interesting to have it be him as the, the one who's not willing to play the game, but knows it. And like, I really like all of the drops of cantankerousness amongst all of the the people that we follow in this book. So from Jay's, no, they're going to take notes by hand like God intended. <laughs> yes. And then in this in this section, Casavan talking about extra credit, which is, he says is a phenomenon akin to raffles and lottery tickets in which Casavan never indulged. I think that's like, I think the little drops of pushback to sort of the different ways that people teach and the different practices that people engage in is mm -hmm. absolutely hilarious. And I thought it was hilarious that it, it was in reference to, quote, an animated barbarity called Nomeo and Juliet. Yes, that's right. And, you know, like, I think what I find so, so lovely is that we all have that line in the sand that we sort of unreasonably have drawn and then we either decide we're going to stick with our guns or or not and you know <laughs> i would admit that if i was teaching a shakespeare class even if i had a pop culture unit nomeo and juliet might be might be my line <laughs> too i mean it's a fine cartoon but it, you know like it certainly isn't a substitute but it goes back to like we see Casavan using index cards right he's still using index cards to keep track of his systems 
And like, I know one person who used it in their PhD and they were very, like they had just giant Tupperwares full of them. He was a very intense individual, right? Like, and he's the only person I've ever met who I've seen use them outside of a class where they're taught how to use them. So it's just kind of like, there's another example, right? That's how he does it. So that's how he's going to teach his students to do it. But that might not be the way that works best for them. I forgot about the Nomeo and Juliet. Because the other great thing that happens in this chapter that just made me so happy is that <laughs> we see she, in the same chapter that Roland is going to Casavan and seeing you know, what he can do to, to get Casavan on board. We also have the Jay, who doesn't know how to play the game, trying to play the game by going to visit his colleague Glink at Glink's hobby farm. And I was so excited because I was like, what is going to be on this farm? But mm -hmm. I was unprepared for the pure joy that was going to be miniature donkeys. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that feeling too. I was like, where where are we going with this? Where are we going with this? Yes. And then I was like, I don't think I would have guessed many donkeys. I no. And that scene where they're riding in the carriage pulled by miniature donkeys while the other miniature donkeys are like chasing after them. Just feels like that may be truly something for that Schumacher made up, but it just feels like it happened to someone she knows, right? Like that just feels real specific. But here's another good example of, you know, it's it's easy to forget that even people who have felt a calling to be a scholar in X may have discovered at some point in their life that that's not their number one priority. Like Glink doesn't really want to get too invested because he would rather spend his time with his donkeys. And I think that's just a nice reminder that like, we tend to assume that faculty, they've been called, they're going to do research for hours, they're going to be in their office, like Casavan, right? That every professor is a Casavan, but some some are not. Some are like, this is good, but so are miniature donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favorite sentences ever written is at the end of chapter 11, where it says, Glink cracked his whip in the air and the donkeys galloped hell for leather toward the barn. I don't know why that takes me out every time I read yes. it, but it just makes me laugh. I liked the parts where it was, a herd of animals had followed behind them and gradually picking up speed around their tail. Shades of Planet of the Apes fit Gerthot. <laughs> and then he references my Antonia, which is, you know, another book that gets read a lot in English stuff. But, but yeah, so we have these two very, very different, but somehow ultimately the same in terms of the results bids to try to get people invested who do not want to play the game anymore. And I think something else that's kind of set up in this chapter, or well, it happens in this chapter, and then you see kind of glimpses of it, is the one homie is still living with Jay. <laughs> yes, which we get full visions of in chapter 12. I, I just think it's interesting. It's because to me, when I was reading it, it just felt like Jay is getting a taste of his own medicine almost. Like, yes, this professor is trying to reach out for connection to a person the same way that Jay is trying to reach out for connection with his ex-wife specifically. Yes. Also, the stipulation in the divorce that they like have dinner twice a year to celebrate their Yes. Their wedding and their divorce anniversaries, like, Jay is, Jay is not well. <laughs> no, he's not. And of course, like, he's physically very unwell throughout a lot of this book. But I think what is much more shocking is that Janet married him ever than that she divorced him or is annoyed by him. But you're, you're right, like, he spent his entire, like, adult life being a, a man baby, you know, and, and, like, assuming that people will give him the things he wants. And so having the a taste of his own medicine, especially where, because there's the scene where like, Kentrell's like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. And then he's like, 
but I wouldn't mind a piece of toast. And mm-hmm. maybe if I had food, I'd be able to think about something. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> the other thing that happens in chapter 12 that I felt very personally invested in was when Jay is reading another article that was written by Lincoln that's called Students Smarting from Trauma-Inducing Material in Apocalypse Class. Oh my gosh, I yeah. screamed and my partner was out of the room at that time. I don't know if they were downstairs or or just in the office, but they were like, are you good? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, there's the line that says, sophomore Yvetta Curtin, who was not enrolled in the class, but had seen a copy of the syllabus, suggested that the selection of novels was irresponsible and could be dangerous for students with emotional issues or PTSD. I just, when I read that, I was like, so filled with anger. <laughs> because, you know, teaching horror, obviously, I face gentle to to fierce pushback but the idea that there's someone weighing in that wasn't even in the class feels very accurate but very very frustrating (laughs) yeah i think my little bubbling piece of anger was like i take into account because i also teach pop culture classes and I, i very specifically take into account accessibility from the start and so like i think about my students with ptsd Yes. social anxiety and those sorts of things as I'm designing the class. So like, if this was me, I would be raging. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've taught apocalyptic courses before post-apocalyptic literature and film. And, you know, it's not easy, obviously, but like, oh, anyway. So, so it's also kind of interesting to see Jay for once be in a situation that is actually not his fault, right? That he's not somehow mm-hmm. responsible for things. And so, you know, this whole chapter, he's, he's kind of just facing it on all sides, right? So he has it in the mm-hmm. newspaper that he's dealing with control. And then there's the dinner, like you said, uh, divorce anniversary with, with Janet, which goes about as smoothly as almost all of their meals go. Yeah. <laughs> and before, before we talk about that, though, can we talk about control? Because I think one of the things that is hilarious and also sort of agonizing about this chapter is that conversation where... Cottrell's like, toast yes. and eggs, please. Yes. Um, it, it's centered around getting this guy, Oris Weissel, <laughs> to the school to do a reading. And I think it's this, is this interesting, like, it's just so funny because it's another point where Jay is trying to play the game, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, he knows all the rules, but he doesn't understand the moves that he needs to make. Yes. It's very much like me and chess. Like, I get it. I get what the pieces do. I get where the pieces can move, but I don't know what I'm doing. No. So I was once told your greatest strength is that your unpredictability, which basically meant that I didn't know what I was doing. So no one else knew what I was doing. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's not a compliment really, but I'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. But like, it's so funny because like he, because I think Janet has told him a few times, like, get in touch with this person that they know all about fundraising. And he's kind of like, sent a couple of half-assed emails but Mm -hmm. like he automatically just like locks into "Ooh, you're friends with an author a published author and asks no questions and he says he's envisioning weissel's check for a hundred thousand dollars made out to english and it's like why why are you envisioning that yeah the dude didn't say he knows rick riordan he didn't say he knows she who shall not be named but questions dude ask questions yeah and he said and it says the name seemed a little familiar, right? Like he doesn't even, and and you should know by this point in the book that it's not going to, it's not going to work out. Right. I don't think I realized it was going to be children's books. I thought it was going to be like 
pornography or erotica. Like I thought it was going to oh, be. That I thought route. it was going to be. I thought it was going to be something like wildly offensive, like yeah, an ex clan member or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the fact that we all knew, not only because it's because it's Schumacher and it's and it's this world, but like you never agree to bring someone to campus before doing at least a cursory examination. At least you know? googling their name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's just like, great, we'll look forward to that check, you know, sort of like his attitude. So yeah, by the end of chapter 12, he's more or less agreed to this person that he still hasn't looked up yet. And then, you know, Janet and him have this sort of like weird dinner, which again, matches their relationship where it's like, not flirting, but flirting, but really aggressive and a little mean. (laughs) And then, and then we go into the start of the 13th chapter, where we see that we have a, a wedding invitation for the marriage of, of Angela to the person who impregnated her. And in chapter 12, Janet had to spell that out for, for Jay. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, she's pregnant. Please talk to this child. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. The, the wedding chapter, I want to just send a brief shout out to all of the RAs, residence hall advisors. Oh my gosh. Uh, dorm, dorm moms and dorm dads and yeah. dorm parents. All of those people, because I think we had just, I think it's in this one. I think it's in the next chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we had a fantastic little glimpse of good RA. Yes. (laughs) What a good RA looks like in context. And and how you can, like, how an RA's job can can truly run the gambit of, like, oh, great, I'm glad to hear you're doing well, too. Oh, oh, holy cow. Because there's that line where she says that, like, she she was just doing her like weekly check-ins and she's like, Hey, how are you? Give me a thumbs up. And then it's like, oh, not a thumbs up. Yeah. And I'm getting married. So the other important thing that happens before the wedding though is that Ashker, who cracks me up because you know he's not even an English major. In fact, that's like his greatest strength is that he's not an English major. Um, and he's he's entrepreneurial instead, figures out a solution for how to register and save the spot for the auditorium yes and so he figures out that like you can have it costs of course money for a department to do it but it's free for students to do it and each student gets one date and we don't find out till a little bit later the the student groups the names that have registered but there's one that's like zatar and banjos anonymous Uh (laughs) but we just know that he has found a way to make it so that they will be able to have a space because of course now that they all know who the speaker is, they realize they're going to have to bring a lot of children in to, to listen to them. Mm-hmm. To listen to this. Yeah. Yes. And I, yeah, I was really excited when that happened. Yes, <laughs> me I was too. Just like, yes, we finally yes. are finding loopholes or finding ways to beat the system. Jay's not yes. doing it, but at least no. it's being done. Yes, so. it's being done. And it's being done by students who are also learning how to play the game. And you know, what's interesting is that like, entrepreneurial entrepreneurship on different university campuses sometimes it'll be by itself but often it will be with econ or it will be with school of business and usually the resistance to it being in those places is that the idea is is that you know econ and school of business are more about like the traditional models and entrepreneurship is about thinking outside the box i'm glad that she chose that as this as asker's major because it it fits nicely into the dynamic of who's what on campus and then we have a couple other things like castavan witnesses lincoln's like weird little student group where they're not even talking about shakespeare anymore 
and then and tells him that they're uh, withdrawing from yes, the conference. Yes, and Which and I I don't like Lincoln particularly. I I'm kind of neutral on him. I think, but I I felt really bad for him in that moment. Yeah. So I I'm closer to to disliking him than to neutral. But I but I did I felt bad about that too. And you know. Casavan's reason, which is that he doesn't feel like he should be doing that anymore, he needs to be focusing on his book, makes perfect sense, but also like he has a responsibility to his his student. His right? research uh, assistant, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then we also find out, which of course we'll we'll need to to know that Janet's father has come <laughs> to town. Um and we find out that Janet broke up with Philip, right? Broke up with the dean. Also in this chapter, af- right after the conversation about the conference and withdrawing the paper i thought this was about to turn into a murder mystery because like yes. we've seen all of this vandalism and then we have this moment where he's walking and he thinks he hears footsteps behind him and like there's ice he's trying not to slip he's walking with his walking stick that he refuses to call a cane <laughs> and he's looking around and he's looking towards the blue box the help box and i was just i i was really expecting something where it's like out of nowhere he was shoved and something happened but like that's not where it went and uh i'm glad that's not not where it went but yeah i was like is this about to turn into a whole different book (laughs) i had i had the same thought and i wasn't sure i didn't think that he was going to be killed but i i was wondering if it was going to be escalated right and and with some sort of thing like somebody did it thinking it would be good for publicity but but he breaks a hip or you know something like that and this this is the chapter a lot happens in this chapter this is the chapter where roland finds out that they need to move the date of their big event and they have to move it a before the paperwork is officially signed and then b they find out that the only venue is the gym and so this is where we find out that the group student groups who had reserved the auditorium are the Payne's Somali American Cultural Society, the Future Millionaires Forum, <laughs> the Organization for Pregnant and Parenting Students, Banjos and Zithers Anonymous, <laughs> and the university's chapter of Zombies versus Radioactive Squid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And even though I definitely not in the least at all feel bad for Roland, I, I do think it's, you know, this is a kind of interesting like sticking point of, you know, at what point do we prioritize students? And student organizations and student facing things over, you know, I mean, he's he's going to be bringing in millions of dollars, like millions and millions of dollars. They can't ask one of those groups to move, you know, like the university can't, right? Like, so I thought that was also kind of a nice little moment of like that reminder that there's that tension between who's number one in terms of priorities. Also, in this section, I just want to, we're going to get to it later, obviously, but first of all, I, I found it hilarious that marilyn is talking to roland and he's just like water polo what like how dare this woman want to see her grandchild compete in a sport but also for me in this section i kind of i kind of clocked where he said oh they're gonna have to move it to move the announcement to prior to signing the paperwork yeah but i really zoned in on the organization for pregnant and parenting students and i was like i wonder if that's going to be something that he walks in to see if the group is actually there and it's just jay and angela meeting and something like that so i didn't know so like i feel like i focused on the incorrect thing but yes but the change of date in this is 
where we should be focusing. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because like on the one hand, you know, your your family should come first. But on the other hand, there is this sort of like, they have organized an event <laughs> and she's going to cancel on them last minute. They organized mm-hmm. it back in September. So there's that part of like needing to appease the donors and, and for the first time, it biting Roland, right? Because we mm-hmm. see that he's really good at, at bringing in donors and he doesn't really care most of the time, whatever they demand, because he doesn't really care. But now he's realizing that when you let donors do whatever, they're going to do whatever. And then at the the chapter ends with Janet and her dad just happening to drive by as Jay is, is walking with Marie Ellen, the foreign language professor, which, you know, has been just kind of a nice little undercurrent of of tension in the ever-going conflict that is Janet and Jay. Yeah, I think this is another piece of Jay's personality that we get to finally come to, not a conclusion on, because we probably thought this already, but like <laughs> the fact that he doesn't listen yeah. is about 80% of his problem. Yes. So like in the previous chapter when he had dinner with Janet, she's like trying to tell him important stuff and he's just like, no, 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 she's going to talk about this. So, yeah. like, it's like, dude, you don't know any everything. Like, be, yeah. you don't know anything at this point. Be quiet and listen. And it's the same thing here where Marie is basically having to break into his internal monologue and be like, no, this, 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 and this. And so, yeah, like, him, him not listening is this repeated issue that compounds all of the other issues. Yes. And it's interesting that she's the one to tell him mm-hmm. that Janet is has broken up with philip but yes if if jay would ever listen to someone else and for a moment he does right Mm -hmm. kind of in in the wedding chapter the wedding which doesn't even end up happening right and it gets a whole chapter just for the wedding which i thought was really lovely uh because it's what we needed and it's Um, where every all of the threads came together all of the different people that we've been following And their situations kind of come together. And I thought it was very cinematic because of how much was happening, but also the ways in which Schumacher transitions between the characters Mm -hmm. and these like really tense moments of crisis about like this thing and this thing and this thing. Um, So it felt it felt very much like the the movie montage of, you know, the wedding that shouldn't be taking place. Like, yeah. And there's this uh, moment, now I probably won't be able to find it, but there's this moment where she describes why the wedding is happening when it is, and maybe it's here and maybe, or maybe it's a little earlier, but she says that her classes were, you know, such and such and such and such time and Trevor's were such and such and such and such. And so they found a like 45 minute window when they could get married. And I I don't think I've ever read such a depressing (laughs) statement in my entire life about like how one fits in your wedding. And, you know, like Brandy even has her like flashcards, like she had to leave class a few minutes early. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's, it's so devastating as is, you know, Angela's just belief that this is just what she has to do. Yeah. And I think this is, This is such a good chapter because I think it does a really good job of, and I know both of us like kind of came from these backgrounds, so we know Mm -hmm. exactly what Angela is going through, Yeah, but it does a really good job at breaking down what she's going through without seeming like it's bashing on her background or anything like that. And it's all of these things that keep poking at Angela that are wrong. Right. And so like, her mom's not there. She asked Trevor to play Joyful Joyful, but he's playing some kind of like 
Wagner music or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. Like these, there's just all these little things, and she's like, he's not in a suit, and he's in a, he's in a tie, but not a full suit. Right. But my dress was only seven dollars, so it's all of these little things, and I think like, so two things. First, I think it did a really good job. Schumacher did a really good job of spotlighting an issue that we as faculty and staff know is there, but that we don't really think about, which is the idea that yes, college is the space where you're supposed to grow, you're supposed to learn how to be an adult, but a lot of our students are are growing out of their families or outgrowing their families, not in a, not in a, we're going to cut them off kind of way, but they're becoming different people that a lot of times their families really don't support. And so I think that that was good of Schumacher to, to put in there because it, it humanized both Angela and her mother, even yes. if you are, you know, as I was mad at her mom. Oh, um, I was furious. Yeah. But it did a good job of being like, no, these are, these are people and they're both dealing with the differences in mm -hmm. Angela right now. But the other thing that I thought was really good in this section was Brandy. So this is the shout out to the RAs. Yes. Um, yes. And she says she's being supportive and she's talking to her and distracting her and all of this stuff. But she says, before we walk out of this room, I want you to give me three reasons, three good reasons. Other than yes. that, Brandy nodded at Angela's stomach to explain why you're ready to marry this guy. And it is, like you said, it's devastating because she's like, well, he's smart and he's nice. And he didn't call me a liar when I told him I was pregnant. Yeah. And it's like, and Brandy is sitting there going, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah at one yeah. point she's like we'll call that two and a half reasons yeah 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 and even when she says even when angela says that they have things in common and the similar backgrounds all she can name is that they met at bible study she yeah. can't really name anything else because she doesn't know him, and right i think that this is also a good spotlight on another thing that happens in college which is I know people tend to think that high school is the time for your first love, but for a lot of people, it's college and you end up staying in relationships that are not serving you well because you think this is, this is it. This is what I have to do. So yeah, the section was really great for both of those reasons. And of course, there's a line that says his mother had spoken to their pastor, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. uh, and so, you know, there's, there's all, like you said, there's all of these red flags for all of us, right? Not that we needed any, just getting married in between classes is a pretty, pretty good one. Um, but then there's <laughs> even the idea that like, she assumes she's just going to go back to the her dorm, right? Like she's not even planning to necessarily live with him. So Brandy, right, is like, were they going to spend a romantic night sleeping on a couch in the student center or in a tent <laughs> in the mud on the quad? And then she says she hadn't imagined sleeping in the same bed or even the same room in twin beds with Trevor. And she would rather go to her chemistry lab than have sex again. <laughs> So we, when I was an undergrad, there was this little chapel. So there was the church across the street, but there was a little tiny chapel that actually was where we did all of our theater because we didn't have a theater space. And I don't think it was like a decommissioned chapel. I think it was still a chapel, but this entire scene, I was picturing it in that chapel. So it just like also, even though I never had a, you know, like a shotgun wedding, it just <laughs> kind of created that, that impression. And then of course we get to see who all showed up and... You know, and I think it's important that all of the people we wanted to be in her corner yes. are in her corner. Yes, and and, and there's even um, the one professor who they describe wearing like 
a necklace that's the all the keys on a t- on a typewriter mm-hmm. and she's and she's like she was wondering if this was some sort of like subversive feminist act for extra credit for the women in gender studies class yeah uh, that was great <laughs> and of course we realize that ficker is not in his he's not there on time because heaven forbid he'd be there on time instead he's, he's never he's, anywhere he's, on time yeah, yeah <laughs> he's messing once again with the this statement of vision and i love this list where he talks through why he thinks all the people so he says you know like there's some, someone who was rescued from rodentia someone else was relieved of their masturbator in the class yeah several people had something in their contract signed that they wouldn't be on committees with some people and a couple of them i think control was on both of those lists someone else was given the ability to to brew com- kombucha <laughs> <laughs> somebody else was given their, the birthdays of the Bronte sisters are put on the calendar. And then, of course, you know, Kentrell was like housed for a month. So I just thought that was that was very amusing that there was all of the the things that he's been doing, right? That some of them are big and some of them are small. But but he's we get to see the fruit of his efforts for the last he has been months. He has been working, yes. <laughs> he has been working. Yeah. And, of course, he also has Rogaine because, like, Fran has increasingly given him Rogaine. And, uh, you know, Rogaine gets into some confetti. Which also sounds about right. I love that. I love that the dog's name is Rogaine. I know. Um, and then we get to. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say during the wedding, I think one of the other things that made it feel really cinematic was the pastor's, I don't know, program, the wedding program, yes. the, the yes. procedures of the wedding being in italics. Amen. You may sit. The always creator in the Garden of Eden. And then it breaks off because it really emphasizes that this wedding that's going on isn't isn't the point and isn't important. Yes. Um, what's important is all of the stuff that's happening in the audience and in Angela's head. So yes. yeah. Yeah, because Ficker's having like entire conversations. Yeah. <laughs> about and we also get to see a couple of different sort of like this would be moments where we'd have flashbacks, right? Because we get mm-hmm. to see Dennis or Casavan, right, having a flashback to his wife being pregnant. And, you know, we get to f- to learn in here that, you know, that Casavan's son died young. And we get to flashback of um, Janet and Jay's marriage. And I'm really glad we didn't hear too much more of the, the sermon or homily because there's a line that says, at the front of the chapel, the minister spoke at some length about God's separate divinely sanctioned plans for wives and for husbands Uh and i've been to those weddings Mm -hmm. um and yeah and i had to fight everything in my body to keep a smile plastered my face because i listened to somebody describe something about like when he lifts up your tear-stained face with his rough worked hands and i'm like he has a desk job what are we doing here (laughs) um (laughs) and yeah so you know like i definitely definitely I was like the whole time I was like, I, I, if I hear any more of this, I'm going to, to destroy someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then like Jay is talking with Janet about how he's not actually dating Marie. He's talking with Fran. He's talking with Stang, the, the feminist scholar. He's talking with Casimir. He's just like <laughs> having a conversation with every single person. Because it's very um, much the feeling of, yes, they are all in one spot. Let me do this before. Yes. And then there's a line that kind of reminds us that, like, Angela's probably not on board 
but it would be easy for her to be. So there's a line that says, at the altar, perhaps fully persuaded that she was at fault for the fall of mankind, <laughs> Angela handed her plastic flowers to Brandy. <laughs> Would Trevor, as first among equals, <laughs> you know, promise to have and to hold, to guide and to tutor. And it's like, oh my gosh, she's so much smarter than he is. Like, it's driving me batty. <laughs> and then actually, the it's there's a line that says, Angela had heard Professor Ficker enter the church. She was glad that he and her other professors were there. And during the wedding, she had been reassured by the sound of his voice occasionally rising and falling behind her, as if he were a participant in the service or the prayers. And then she said she doesn't think he was religious, but... He believes fully in the the idea of the taking control of one's narrative. Mm -hmm. I really liked the very end of the chapter because it, I feel like it mirrored their first meeting really well, where it's like when they first met, she's, she's shaking because she has to read aloud in front of everyone and he's approaching her like ready to tell her off, but he stops, he Mm -hmm. stops and he does something that's good and encouraging. And like this is the same thing where she's literally <laughs> shaking. It says the that the daisies on her dress had begun to shake as if to remove themselves from the fabric. And again, he approaches her and does the right thing in that moment for her. Yeah. And then the minister says, "You presume to advise this young woman, right?" And so for the first time, maybe ever, Jay is actually taking intentional action. Of course, he says, "I do," which is Mary. Not only the the wedding. Um, lines but also right like we're reminded that he actually is her advisor right and so he's he is actually i mean he's going above and beyond you you don't usually need to advise your advisees on whether or not they should get married yeah but um nevertheless we have that and it was just it was just kind of lovely to see that you know they have this conversation that we don't actually get to really see too much of if any, really, where we just find out that they talked for over an hour and Angela says, you know, that like he just told her she she has the ability to be the main character in her story and that, you know, she doesn't have to do something just because everyone showed up. On the one hand, I felt a little disappointed that we didn't get to, to read that conversation, you know, as it was happening, but it probably was for the best, right, that we didn't get to see it because then we could just imagine it working out kind of perfectly yeah well and i think the other thing too is if we had seen it then i feel like it would have fallen into one trap or the other of it seeming like oh well magically now in this moment jay is this perfect person who knows exactly mm-hmm. what to say and has and understands and empathizes perfectly with this other person or mm-hmm. it would have been kind of his normal bumbling thing but then the payoff of what she talks about in the final chapter wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's good that we didn't see it. So as we get to the final chapter of the book, we get to what is for me, the one, my only real criticism of the book, because by this point I've realized that, and I actually read a review that said, um, anyone who dismissed this book immediately because it wasn't an epistolary form is ignoring the fact that by breaking the form, she ensured that we weren't just having the same book just, new events, right? So I, I, you know, I actually am appreciative that the book isn't in epistolary form, but my one complaint is that the novel ended a little too fast. I think this last chapter needed to be about two chapters because there's a lot going on and, and some of it could be that fast, but it just, it just ended a little too abruptly to wrap up some of the things that she was hoping to wrap up. In my opinion, I don't know if you felt that way. I, I was okay with it, but I did feel like I really wanted to know who the Vandal was. Um, yes. Yeah, we never office. find out. But that's okay. 
Yeah, you know, I think, or it maybe not even two chapters, maybe just a few more pages. Like, I don't think we needed to see the the event with the the children's author. Um, I think just hearing about it was good enough. We don't need to hear or read the more than what we get about her just sort of describing her plans, right? She's going to go home for the summer. She's hoping to come back. She's definitely not going to that really conservative school. And, you know, they got her shirts uh, for her and the baby. I don't think we needed to see the entirety of the scene with Roland. I think hearing it from Janet worked nicely. But I do want to talk about this because... <laughs> no, I needed all... I needed every second of the scene with Roland. So yeah, I mean, I would have liked to, I would have liked to have seen it. I also think that when we get to it, that the section with Casavan and, and Rogaine, which are two separate scenes, just again, needed a little bit more. But let's, let's start with Roland. So <laughs> we, you know, read, go, re, going into this book, I didn't know if Roland was going to be successful or not, because people that he's trying to represent are often successful, right? So I didn't know if Schumacher was going to have him like succeed or, or not, but I'm so glad that if he was destroyed, that he destroyed himself, right? That it was nobody else that got involved. It wasn't Jay for, taking him down. No, yeah, no. Which would have been so unrealistic, right? Yeah. And it wasn't even the administration taking him down because the administration's been very apathetic. It was um, completely really him getting in his own way. Slash him hating the mascot with a passion untold. <laughs> so he has this like intense hatred of, of that like prairie dog and so when the prairie dog shows up because when you rent the gym for an event the mascot comes with it <laughs> and he just can't like stand the mascot and then he just loses it um and he just gives the speech totally totally wrong which we don't see all of it we just hear from janet that he mixed up the the names of the two donors one of them is pratt and one of them is fix right and he, he switched the letters so that it was the fat pricks and a thing and because the paperwork hadn't been signed which we had received that foreshadowing earlier he loses all of that money and it goes viral because all the students are recording it and we don't ever we don't find out if he's gonna still be at the university but he's definitely definitely not going to survive that one yeah and i think like like you said it was it was him getting taken down by himself like i think it's interesting that what we see of it we see that specifically it's the things that in other situations served him very well the 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 confidence bordering on arrogance the persona of the he's the boss he's the one in control that sort of thing but he can't do that with pup dog <laughs> the, <laughs> the mascot knows no fear and no god they are just there and so it's like the exact same things that in other scenes we've seen work really well for him that it's like no contextually speaking this this isn't gonna work for you bro i would have really liked to have seen him like rip the the head off of the the costume and there being this like description of you know the decapitated head of pup dog and then you know there's <laughs> there's who is ever in the the suit you know and, and so like i just feel like that's something that roland would have done and i would have enjoyed seeing a little bit more his sort of fall from from grace as someone who whose greatest ambition during high school was to be the mascot during yeah. football games for some reason i wanted to be in a full body velvet suit in the middle of texas heat yeah that's um, that's not good but the other thing that really stood out was we get roland as almost this all-knowing godlike character yes. he puts himself in situations of power he knows everybody he knows 
everybody's like not just who they are but their like specific quirks so he knows how to wine and dine Hinkler and what to yes. talk about with him and those sorts of things and generally he also has just a lot of basic information about things too so like yes. and and whether or not that's through Marilyn but this seems like a very specific oversight right like how did you not know you know all of the schemes and plots behind the yes. scenes for this school but you don't know that Pup Dog comes with the venue and you don't know who the student is inside yeah, of yeah. Pup Dog. Yeah. So, yeah, again, it's this, I don't know, I just really enjoy it. It's kind of why I enjoy a lot of different types of anime. I like it yeah. when you see someone who's winning and a tiny part of, part of you just wants them to continue winning. But at yes. the same time, that's not realistic. So this is his moment of not quite making not quite yes. making it happen and you know to, to your point about about him being very powerful and in charge of all the things that could make him feel discombobulated it's not wooing and dining millionaires it's not giving big speeches it's a mascot and like i never wanted to be a mascot but i'm I am rather enamored of mascots uh, to the point that even like when whoever is Leroy, which is our mascot here at Trinity, shows up, like I get a little shy and I'm like, oh, it's Leroy. Like, I don't, I mean, it's definitely not a normal reaction. I'm telling you that. But like, who doesn't like mascots, right? Like, who doesn't like that person? And so, so it's just funny that like that's his, his Achilles <laughs> heel is his. And like, pup dog. At so many schools, the mascot is the local celebrity. Like, I went yes. to Iowa State for my PhD, and rumor has it that Cy, our cyclone, did have a tuxedo so he could show up at weddings if you invited him. So That's hysterical. Like, but it's also just funny because it's clearly another example of this school trying to emulate other schools. Because, like, yes. their football team is, like, 0 and, 0 and 9 or something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Something. And, but, like, you know, but the mascot shows up at everything still, so. Yes. <laughs> so we have this moment of levity, right? And then we kind of go into the final pages of the book, which are, are going to be a little less amusing. In fact, I even kind of teared up at the end. But first, we have this discussion where we find out that Janet is kind of adopting adopting Rogaine. Um, she wants to co-parent Rogaine. But she wants to co-parent, parent, which I thought was amazing because I really, really, really did not want her to get back with Jay, right? Like, she can't. It would be in nobody's interest, <laughs> best interest, certainly not hers. But she also can't let him go for, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. And this seems like a perfect solution mm -hmm. uh for their very very weird relationship yeah definitely and it also mirrors again something that happened in the beginning of the book where it was like you know she she's trying to cut ties with him she seems to just be annoyed by his presence like looking at his face makes her itch yeah. but she's still his emergency contact on things so it's yeah. like yeah. yeah and and she's he's still the first person she would think of to co-parent this this dog and very she's still like <laughs> And she still, you know, enjoys his company a smidge sometimes, right? Because they're like laughing about the Pratt fix mistake. Uh, we should also mention that Fran can no longer take care of Rogaine because she now has a three foot long Monitor lizard, lizard that's, yeah, that's not done growing. So that just makes me happy. So at the very end, we're in the final pages and Fran cannot stay because 
She has to go take her monitor lizard to the vet, but they have the ballots in for the statement of vision and they have to have two faculty members and one staff member present in order to count the ballots. So they're walking along. They have Janet because Janet says she would do it. They have Jay. They need one other person. And then the custodial worker comes in and tells them, you know, you need to come with me. And then we shift to, to Cassavan's point of view and Cassavan is writing an exam essay and and then he realizes that the, the what he was hearing all along was not someone trying to murder him it was his own heart beating its final beats and that's that's the part i when you know when he passes away that's the part i teared up on and i wasn't sure if i was tearing up because i think i was tearing up because we're reminded when he's looking at the things on his desk that part of the reason Cassavan is so focused on his book is he doesn't have anyone else you know his wife died his son died. This is this is all that he has left. And it's a book no one's going to want to read. It's a book he's not even entirely easily writing. And he doesn't even die doing that, right? He dies writing an exam essay. And I will retire before that point. Like, <laughs> I will retire before then. But there's something really depressing about the idea of doing one of the worst parts of teaching and dying. It's, he has such a quiet death, which mirrors his very quiet life. It was just very sad. But also... But also... <laughs> what happens next is, again, like, again, we don't get Jay suddenly turning into this wonderful character in the face of another death. We get Jay as he is, and somehow it feels right. <laughs> yeah, so first he says, he puts um, one of the SOS buttons in Cassavan's pocket and says... Keep this man safe, he thought, contemplating his colleague. I had rather have such men my friends than enemies. Actually, he says that after he, he counts the ballots because he has his priority straight. So he assumes technically there are two faculty members physically present. Yeah, no, he says um, straight out. It doesn't say they have to be alive. Yeah, yeah. And then he reads through them and and it is all in favor of it, right? So it's a unanimous thing. No, no, Casavan hadn't completed his, which is, you know, interesting because then we don't, you know, if there's this idea of like, we don't know if he would have said yes. And remember, it had to be, it had to be everyone in agreement. It had to be anonymous, um, not anonymous, unanimous. And so, yeah, so then he has what he wants. Finally, their department is not going to dissolve that semester. Yeah, yet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, but then we have this last, the last sentence of the book. We're like, gosh, darn it. It's so frustrating that we can't just always assume that you're just going to be a, the, this terrible person because you are not. Because the last sentence is, the first order of business in the coming year, Ficker thought, would be the reestablishment of the breastfeeding lounge. Yeah. Which so I, love like, that uh, a, I love that as an ending line. I mean, what a fantastic final sentence. And so there's, there's the book. I really liked it an awful lot. I need, I need this to be a series at this point. Like, I am I, fully invested. At least two more I books. am too. I really would like at least one more, I would happily take two more. And I would also happily see this as a show. I think this would make for a yep. fantastic show. I want an HBO miniseries. Yes. Yes, yes. And speaking of because which, we have casting choices. Speaking of which, we have casting choices. So HBO, since you're listening <laughs> to this podcast. Clearly. um, Yeah. And you know, I won't lie, there's definitely some people on my list that would require considerable amounts of money. But you know, <laughs> mine HBO. is all people who would require considerable amounts of yeah. money. So let's start. Do we want to start with at the the bottom of the list with 
and then work our way up to Jay and Janet? Or do we want to start at the top with Jay and work our way down to the the smaller characters? Either one. You you choose. Okay, let's start let's start at the bottom with our characters that are some of the smaller ones and then and then end with, with Jay. So I struggled with Ashker a little bit because I realized that most of the people that I wanted to play him were not the right age. They were they were too old because you really want someone that definitely feels like they're a younger person. So I finally went with, there's an actor named, and I apologize in advance for slaughtering it, Defero Woon Atai. He's in Res Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a, an indigenous actor and, and he just kind of does a good job. I mean, he does an excellent job in that show, but I just think it would be Nice to have it be somebody that you might not immediately picture as as an entrepreneurial student. If by your usual default you just picture white people, um, <laughs> that it, that it be someone someone else. And the name right um, allows us to to be very explicit. HBO, who's going to cast us? That it can't all be white actors. Yeah, I picked Karen Brar for Ashkir, uh, and he's been in Diary of a Wimpy Kid, uh, mm. some TV shows, and Pacific Rim too. Uh, which I forgot until I was doing this, and I was like, "Oh yeah." So yeah, I, I actually I think he'd be great. I, I think he's got the baby face of yeah. a college student. <laughs> yes, yes. And I when I saw that, I was like, "Ooh, he really is." Uh, I think the the best choice. It was just too late for me at that point to, <laughs> to do it. I'm gonna go out of the order we have just because I I want to save. I want to try to put people that I think are the like. Mm-hmm. more important characters a little later so let's go to to lincoln next mm-hmm. who do you have i have will lincoln? poulter who if, oh yeah if you've seen voyage of the dawn trader the newest uh uh-huh. set of chronicles of narnia he played eustace and i there's something about lincoln that just feels a little he feels like eustace he feels a little yeah. like a little full of himself a little but like not to the point where you hate him just to the point where it's like you might need a couple of reality checks and some revisioning of your life choices yes i like that so i went with an actor actor choices that were a little bit older because i wanted us to be very uncomfortable with how old he is mm-hmm. to still be making no money so if i if i wanted to go with a version that i was more punchable uh it would be zach braff who <laughs> was in scrubs because he just to me has a very punchable face um if you didn't want it to be quite so someone to that you want to hate automatically and and i know lots of people like zach braff but but for me if it was going to be someone that was a little bit more ambiguous about their goodness um i would go with uh, raul coley he was in um i zombie he was in midnight mass and he does a good job of of playing a slightly pathetic character but he also is really good at like playing a very smart character and so i think that he'd be a really kind of good mix for for the weirdness that is lincoln okay so oh so i see that for fran we both cast the, the same, same person, person. uh huh and would you be willing to share who that is fran has to be imelda stan there's there's no other there's yeah, no yeah. other choice so i couldn't remember the name umbridge right because this is the, the actress that played professor umbridge um she was also in the last little bit of of downton abbey so i had i had to google harry potter cat lady <laughs> and, and then i was like oh that's her name right and then and yak because you really like imelda staunton is going to be the perfect perfect choice you literally just think about what umbridge looked like in those movies and picture her less done up yes and you've got friends yes. 
And I even feel like that of the castings that this is even like probably who Schumacher had in mind. (laughs) I just like, I'm not sure anyone else could, could play that role. So then let's go to, to Philip. So again, Philip is the gentleman who is dating Janet, who has gotten reversal rights to return back to being a chair of, of the French horn. I have Steve, Steve Waddington, who he, he's been on quite a lot of things. He's a pretty well-known British actor, but I think for most of us, his biggest role was Lord Buckingham in season one of The Tudors. Something about Philip just felt like kind of a larger-than-life sized man but Mm -hmm. like someone who could also be like very gentle and very quiet and so like having watched a lot of steve oddington stuff i think he would fit that really well he's he's kind of like when i saw philip in my head i saw the same description in my head that i have of ludo bagman from from the harry potter series but Mm -hmm. like we didn't get an actor for him so i only have my imagination but steve waddington is probably the closest yeah. So I also went with the the sort of larger than life feel. I went with Anthony Anderson from Blackish. <laughs> because I think for me, Phil is somewhere between comical, sad, because like his greatest goal is to return back to playing the French hole or horn. But also he's not stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't get to his position without having some skills. And I, and I feel like Anthony Anderson would bring a nice sort of level to that. Okay. So now let's go to to Angela. So originally, when I thought of Angela, I thought about Brighton Sherbino, who is in The Walking Dead. But I picked that before I had read the wedding invitation chapter. And before I found out that Angela's middle name is Bernice. So I would like to amend that (laughs) that casting to Quivenjanae Wallace. Okay. That should be really good. Yeah, I think either of them would work really well. Yeah. So for me... Because I cast Jay as a white man, because I don't think that the character of Jay can be anything other than a white man. <laughs> um, I didn't. I didn't want there to be this like additional element of of the white savior complex mm-hmm. added to it. So I wanted to go with someone that was also very, very white in terms of like blonde, blue eyed, and and the choice I went with primarily because I had recently rewatched the remake of Carrie was Chloe Grace Moretz. Moret. Ma- yep. Because she did such a good job in Carrie of playing, because, you know, Carrie's comes from a very conservative family as well. Of course, she also has telekinesis, but, you know, <laughs> before that, she comes from a very conservative, um, you know, actually abusive family um, or mom. And so I, th- I, she does a really good job of being kind of downcast, but she also does a really good job of being rather kick-ass. So literally, right, because she's in that movie too. So now we get to Cassavan. The only person who can play him, I will accept no other, is Charles Dance. Okay. Lord Tywin Lannister. Oh, yeah. That's a really, really good choice. It's hard for me to see him, though, and not want to, like, punch him slash be scared of him. I think Casavan gives that very much. Yeah. Interesting. From the faculty standpoint of him being just immovable in terms of both opinions and, and what he's doing, but also from the student standpoint. Because we did get some student reviews of his class of it being yes. like, no, this is this is the hardest class I've ever taken yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. So, yeah. I went with Ian McKellen. Um, <laughs> yes. Which, okay. you know, would definitely be an option because <laughs> he's definitely going to want to join this project. Um, so there we go. <laughs> I mean, um, out of the two, I think 
I think at this point our budget might be able to handle Charles Dance, um, but not Ian McKellen. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> probably not. Especially because we haven't even gotten to our, our top three <laughs> actors yet. So then we let's go to um, let's go to Roland next. I had trouble with Roland. I did too because I didn't know what I was really feeling in the depths of my soul. But yes. I felt like whoever it was, they had to have very nice hair. Oh, that's interesting. And they had to be like a very, a very, a very attractive man who looks like they smell good every day. So, that's so um, funny. my two options that I have are Oscar Isaac um, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And I do not know which of those I would like end up going with. Um at the yeah. end of the day but yeah jeffrey dean morgan has been in supernatural he's been in walking, walking dead. dead yes infamous on the walking dead show and then obviously oscar isaac moon knight and like literally everything else he's been in so much stuff yeah yeah i think jeffrey dean morgan you know he has that ability to play someone that's scary but charming at the same time and i could definitely well, I could see either of them, but it's funny that you said one of your criteria was having nice hair because I realized that both of the people I listed uh, are bald. <laughs> so I decided that I, I wanted this role and character to be really definitely the a good source of, of amusement because he's, you know, powerful, but also like kind of ridiculous um, over the top. So my two options, originally I thought Jason Statham, who's best known for being Jason Statham, Statham right? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Because like he would kind of bring that like thug charm to it and you'd be like, and so I th think that would work. The but then I decided even more than that, I think I would want The Rock. The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say Vin Diesel for a second, and which also oh. would have been choice, no, no, no. but... No, no, no. Um, I think I think The Rock is is a better actor than Vin Diesel. But I think the what's funny about The Rock is that he manages to he knows how to be charming and and to like not come across as scary despite the fact he's a very very big man. Um, and I just I just the there were a lot of descriptions about like the meatiness of Roland's hands <laughs> that just made me feel like that that would work. But it would also be a funny choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I think that I don't want whoever's in that role i don't want people to take that character seriously mm -hmm. so there you go <laughs> and then we get to janet janet uh for me and i had to actually think of reasoning after because the name sprung to mind and i was like there's no other actress that i want in this That's role funny. now but i had to think about why but for me janet is angela bassett and i think that she is an absolutely wonderful actress She's a great comedic actress because she's done she's done a lot of drama, but like when you get her in something funny, she just excels as always. And I think that she would be absolutely hilarious paired with any of my J choices, which we'll get to in a second. Just in terms of like how done she is with him, but at the same See, time, yeah. like that that still maintaining that connection and and being very human about it. Angela Bassett has one of the best shrivel your soul stares mm -hmm. of, of anyone. Like you, anytime she gives someone the eye, like, I just am like, oh, please, I'm so scared. <laughs> like she would be excellent at that. Um, yeah. I chose an, another person named Angela, but it, it was a different one. Mm -hmm. I went with Angela Kinsey, who played Angela on The Office, mm -hmm. um, because I, I had a similar kind of like it needed to be someone that could really convincingly be like, no, no. 
I am done with your nonsense. And and I like the fact that Angela Kinsey is a very small person. So she like she always manages to like be larger than her physical form. And I feel like that fit for my version of Janet. This is off topic, but your wither your soul stare comment reminded me. If for those of you listening, if you've never seen Angela Bassett recite the Lady Macbeth monologue, Google it. It's oh, a it's a treat. That would be oh, that'd be good. I haven't seen it either. It's wonderful. Yes. So, ooh, gosh, it'd be terrifying. Actually, like, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Like, I'm sure it brings like goosebumps. Though mm-hmm. she'd great. be so good at that. So now we get to Jay, and I won't lie. Like my criteria was, and who can best play an entitled white man that may not deserve, not that anyone does, but that like very obviously does not deserve that title because they're not as charismatic, as attractive as smart <laughs> as as they think they are so that was that was the like thing that i was trying to keep in mind but of course that's hard to, to google search for so <laughs> i i actually like one of your suggestions better so i'm gonna say mine first so that we can get to yours okay um i went with david wellis that I, that's how i've chosen to say his last name who played professor lupin and mm. um because he's he's not hideous but he's not super attractive he he does a pretty good job of playing a kind of mopey character at times but he also does a good job of having having that sort of like professorial attitude so i chose him because in this book jay is truly physically falling apart at at any i mean like his teeth are literally coming out so i just needed it to be someone that kind of felt a little mopey but also didn't like could so that's who i went with that was your final choice that was my final choice, yeah. Okay. Until I saw your list and then one of your people on there. Is- which, which, uh, what is it? The first, second, or third that you agree with? I'll, I'll end, th- end with it. It's the, it's the third. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I had a few different feelings about Jay. So I was like, I, I kind of went with who really carries the arrogant know it all, but the, mm-hmm. the gentle and you can tell sensitive, arrogant know it all. Um, so, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was my first choice. Yeah. But I didn't know if Robert Downey Jr. was sort of the look of Jay Jay that I was going for. Yeah, I don't don't think he's the look of Jay. No, because I feel like Jay either, to me, at first I thought, like, Jay was kind of, like, small and weaselly, but, like, (laughs) I think he's one of those people that, like, has a baby face into their 80s. Yes. So, my second option was Paul Rudd. (laughs) Yes. And He's too nice, though. And see, that's I don't know why if he could play the the like douchey part. Well that's enough. why I picked him, because I'd really love to see it. Like, I would really want yes. to see him just be obnoxious for 50 minutes. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. Yeah. So he was my second choice. And then my third choice, which is the one that you like. My third criteria by the end of this book was who do I just want to punch in every single role that they are in? Not because the actor seems punchable, the actor seems fine, but just every single role, I just want to fight him. Jason Bateman. That's so funny. If you haven't seen Couples Retreat, go watch that. That character that he plays is Jay to me. I'm trying to remember. I'm I'm sure I've seen Couples Retreat, but I don't remember his character. So I actually really, really like Jason Bateman. I like almost everything that he's in. And I, I think my only thing that I, I would make me think he isn't quite right is that he may be more attractive than I think Jay should be, because I think Jay should think he's more attractive than he is. 
But Jason Bateman also has a very average look, right? So he he would do a, a really good job with that. I think he's a good like character actor too, so because I really I also love everything, almost everything he's been in. I've seen a bunch of his stuff. Yeah, and I think he's he's really good at if you give him a little, he can do a lot with it. Yeah, and so like I'm sure that if you told him, hey, your character is an obnoxious nerd who thinks he's way more attractive than he is, that would come across on screen. Yes, and I think I think the thing about Jay is is that he has a or had a little bit of charisma right like when he was at his heyday i think that he he slash culture allowed him to have a really sort of like shine to him right and so you do want someone that that doesn't feel like they couldn't ever be the golden child it just needs to be someone that was the golden child despite the fact that they weren't really that good right um and so yeah i think jason bateman would be a, a really good choice i could also see going back to your sm kind of small and weasley line adam scott from from parks and rec i i mean i would i would choose jason bateman over him but but that he kind of also gives that vibe of he's not really like he's got a very small mouth and and you know he's a very small person and so he you know he's one of those people that again is like not as attractive as i think people often think he is but he's still not hideous He's good at playing that sort of like entitled yet also weirdly humble. Oh, this was fun. So thank you to all of you for joining us for our read along of the Shakespeare requirement. We can only hope that we will be able to offer future summer read alongs of future adventures of Jay, because certainly there is so much more that we could explore. I would like to know about how this co-parenting of Rogaine goes. <laughs> I would like to, to see Angela come back and see whether or not she keeps the baby, see whether and how she manages to thrive um, in her second year onward. I want to see Jay on a study abroad trip. Oh, that'd be amazing. And I also would like to see him become Phil's position. I want to see him become the dean. And so just like he keeps being escalated into these roles. Retaliation no by one... promotion. Yes, exactly. Like I really want to see that because then we could see even more. We could see, you know, department chair meetings and all sorts of stuff to those of you listening we'd love to hear what what would you like to see in future books what did you think of the shakespeare requirement now that you finish it who would you cast in that hbo miniseries that you know is pretty much finished now that we've done the casting <laughs> um and we encourage you to go back and, and listen to our other episodes on things all related to teaching lauren anything else you would add no that's all for me okay thank you so very much bye